Surviving in Valentino. I hope you guys have had a wonderful week. Let's get into what I'm obsessed with this week. My weekly weakness this week. We ordered a Nintendo Switch at the start of Bangkok's quarantine lockdown situation. I just say quarantine and lockdown interchangeably. Um, I feel like I should make it clear that nobody in my family, like we don't, we don't have coronavirus. So I guess we're not technically under quarantine, we're just under lockdown. But we got it at the start of lockdown because we're like, we're gonna all be stuck at home together. Like we might as well have some fun, play some video games, do a friendly family competition. And at this point now, with everything, the law is kind of loosening up and stuff. We get together once a week, like my family, like the uncles, the aunties, cousins, all that, for a big family dinner once a week, usually on a Sunday, and the kids, quote unquote, but that includes, you know, me, my cousins, <laughs> we're like 20s and early 30s, but we're considered like the third generation, so I guess to them we're still considered the kids. We play with like our nieces and nephews, <laughs> who are like seven years and nine years old, um in like mario party and mario kart games and listen i downloaded mario kart on my family's nintendo switch exclusively so me and my brother and my sister-in-law can practice because let me tell you something these five-year-olds seven-year-olds nine-year-olds whatever they know their video games okay they i feel like they did their research because i think they picked the best characters and then they memorize the best car features like the tires because you know how you put your cars together the car frame the tires the gliders they know the best of all of that so we can getting asses beat by seven and nine year olds and we were like okay this is like, this is not happening you know like we gotta we gotta humble them so it's turned into something real serious but it's also really fun you know when they're not around we play drunk and it's like the best thing ever it's like the best family bonding time ever so yeah, that's what I've been obsessed with for not just this week, but maybe for like the entire duration of lockdown. Okay, before we get into our conversation with the guest of the week, I just want to remind you guys that you can purchase my eight-week workout program, Vibing Strong. My workout plan is super at-home friendly and it is super effective. I designed it so that it periodizes resistance. So your heavy days, your medium days, your light days, you just have to have several like versions of weights so you can do like small water bottles medium water bottles large water bottles if you want or like textbooks you know like a backpack and just put different amounts of shit inside your backpack as weights like you can use anything in your house so you can purchase that you can book a one hour consultation with me about anything fitness and nutrition related or you can just drop me a message, say hi, and I would love to hear from you. You guys can do all that at vivingandvalentino.com. Okay, let's get right into our conversation with our guest this week. Our guest this week is a licensed psychologist in California, Illinois, and Florida. She is a certified sex therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist, and packed trained couples therapist. She also specializes in sex and relationships, trauma recovery, eating disorders, body image issues, PTSD, and so, so much more. If I had to list all of her credentials, we would be here all day. 
So take my word for it, she is legit. Dr. Kate Balistrieri, welcome to Vibing in Valentino. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I know, I'm so excited to talk to you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What made you want to become involved in this line of work? That's a great question. So my this is a second career for me. And oh, wow. my first career, I was an insurance broker. So oh. I used to sell employee benefit packages and create medical, dental, life insurance, all of that for mm. employers. And that was really great. And I just felt like I needed a little bit more purpose, okay. a little bit more meaning in my life. Yeah. So I went to my second biggest love in life, which was like watching true crime documentaries. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I thought it would be really interesting to learn more about the criminal justice system and yeah. what makes people tick. And so that's what I've been doing my whole early career. I was a forensic psychologist and worked in the prison systems for a long time, yeah. worked with sex offenders, non-sexual violent offenders, and then transitioned into private practice. And throughout all of that, I've just been... And working with people who have experienced and sometimes perpetrated pretty significant kinds of trauma. Yeah. And yeah, so it's taken a lot of different iterations yeah. throughout my career, but here I am. Well, that's so interesting. So you were like kind of a key witness to like courts mm -hmm. and cases mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I couldn't imagine working so closely with sex offenders. You have to come from a place of such deep like understanding and such an open mind. Yes. Do you see that it's a common pattern where it's like it's been past trauma that's come up that makes them kind of act out in the way that they do? Yeah, there, there were a lot of instances of trauma in most of the offenders' lives that I worked with and most of the non-sexual offenders' lives that I worked with. You know, people who find themselves in prison often have experienced significant trauma, whether it's physical, emotional, sexual, financial, mm -hmm. overt or covert. Yeah. You know, that's part of why I wanted to work in that world because I wanted to understand how do so many people make decisions in their lives that seem so survival based mm -hmm. or opportunistic based and you know what separates these two different paths and create a path where people end up in the same place. Right. Yeah. Right. Your area of specialty among so many others is sex addiction. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to lie, like a little bit of me always thought that like sex addiction was kind of a cop out mm -hmm. for like cheating celebrities, you know, whenever they get caught, they're like, oh, I have, like, sex addiction, but that's wrong, and do you think that that is, like, kind of a misunderstanding that you have to battle constantly and people that don't really get the full picture? Well, first of all, let me just say this. There are a lot of dissenting opinions about whether or not sex addiction mm -hmm. is a valid diagnosis, and in okay. America, we don't have that listed in our diagnostic manual as a valid diagnosis, but internationally, there is a diagnosis for compulsive sexual behavior disorder. So when I'm talking about sex addiction here, I'm using that phrase, you know, sort of casually. Mm -hmm. But what I'm really trying to describe is a pattern of compulsive sexual behavior that does end up getting people in trouble. Right. Right. And so I don't mean necessarily trouble legally, but they have some kind of negative consequences in their life. So whether that's physical mm -hmm. consequences. Um, people can contract STDs or injure themselves right, physically right. through compulsive sexual behavior. Um, financial consequences are pretty stark. Really? Oh, yeah. I've seen people drain their 401ks because they have a compulsive 
uh, pattern of sexual behavior with prostitutes, or they've been <gasps> extorted, or they have lost their jobs because of their... Oh my god, I didn't think about all those ways. Yeah. It's really complex. Yeah. And people damage a lot of their relationships, and I've seen marriages tank, relationships yeah. with children go under. You know, it, it, it can be pretty austere mm -hmm. when you think about the longevity of consequences in people's lives because of compulsive behavior. Yeah. So, not to mention the way in which compulsive sexual behavior often results in people having a lot of difficulty with intimacy and feeling pretty numb and checked out. Yeah. And so they tend to be more transactional in their personal relationships, which feels really lonely and alienating for them and the people they're in relationship with yeah. and compels them into more compulsive behavior. So wow. it's, you know, it's a lot more complex and nuanced than we might think about. But all of those consequences aside, the only person who can determine if they're an addict or they have a compulsive sexual behavior problem is that person. Mm -hmm. Because each person can define what is the threshold for a problem in their life. Yeah. If they're like, hey, I'm okay with this mess. This makes sense for me. I dig it. It works for me. Then I wouldn't call someone an addict. But really? Yeah. But if they are you know, in pain because what they're doing goes against their value system mm -hmm. or the consequences are so drastic that they're like, maybe I should reevaluate what's going on in my right. life. Then we, we start talking about whether or not there's a problem. Mm, got it. If they don't have an issue with it, you wouldn't say it's addiction. I wouldn't because I think that sexuality is really broad and yeah. one person's definition of hypersexuality might look very Not different than another person's. Yeah. And who is who am I right, to right. say this is a problem or it's not? Right. You can't be like, oh, you're having like too much sex or too many parts. Like that's not, yeah. Yeah. People can that's have true. lots of sex with lots of different people and still not be a sex addict. Yeah. People can have lots of affairs and not be a sex addict. Mm. What I'm looking at is, is it compulsive? Have they tried to stop and they can't? Do they require more and more or more frequent sexual behavior to mm -hmm. achieve the same kind of relief or release? Mm -hmm. And are they experiencing any kinds of withdrawals? Right. So with sex addiction, that can look like um, difficulties in, with sleep, with anxiety, with depression, with irritability. Wow. They can have changes in appetite, much like what you might experience you know, detoxing from a chemical. Wow, addiction. and you've seen this happen in your patient. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Is sex addiction a common addiction amongst like the general population? You would say? That's a good question. There's a lot of differing statistics around that. Yeah. Um, but what I will say is that I think it is underrepresented in our research mm. because a lot of people have so much shame around their sexual behavior mm -hmm. that they don't come forward to get assessments or treatment. And I think we really are seeing a, a trend toward more people getting treatment and starting to recognize the problem, especially yeah. as we start seeing more and more of this uh, addiction take shape with porn. There's a lot of people who are compulsively acting out with porn mm -hmm. and feeling really isolated in that pain. Yeah. So, Do you yeah. think the porn industry helps or hinders sex addiction as an illness? You know, like, because before, before, like, you porn or Pornhub, it wasn't mm -hmm. free. <laughs> so now that it's, like, free and, like, nobody has to pay, you know, watch or anything, like, do you think it kind of makes the statistics worse? Like, Well, think about it this way, right? Mm -hmm. when, when we had a prohibition against alcohol, 
people who wanted to get access to alcohol found ways. Yeah. And addiction still flourished there, but you know, people's access was less. So mm -hmm. there were less people consuming that. So likely less addiction reports. The same is true when we have pornography that's available. When it's mm -hmm. free and widely accessible, more people get access to it. It doesn't mean everyone who uses it even regularly is mm -hmm. an addict. Yeah. But for people who do have addiction um, predispositions and their addiction takes that shape and form, yeah. having it widely available is like bringing them into a bar and saying, all the fuck is yours. Right, yeah. like an open bar. Yeah. So, so it's like the people that watch it every all day long type situation you would yeah. say yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and also have they tried to stop does it bother them because uh, there are whole communities of people um, called somosexuals mm -hmm. who refrain from any sort of intercourse with other people specifically uh, with women mm -hmm. this is a group of men and you know they have a lot of attention paid to masturbation mm -hmm. and they don't consider themselves to be addicts because in their mind this is how they are devotional. But can I answer your original question? Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. cop out for people. And that's what you asked. And I think there are people who have used this condition as a cop out, just yeah. like there are people who would use any kind of mental illness or, you know, significant medical issue as a cop out for mm -hmm. poor behavior. Right. But the majority of people are struggling. Very yeah. self-diagnose or struggle. Yeah. What is the treatment protocol for sex addiction that you give your patients? Because it's not like drugs or alcohol where it's like quit. Mm -hmm. You know, if they have a family, if they're trying to create a family, like they have to have sex. So what is that treatment? I'm glad you asked because any kind of process addiction, which is an addiction that involves a compulsive behavior mm -hmm. pattern, is really difficult to just refrain from in terms of being abstinent. So we don't need cocaine, we don't need alcohol to survive. Right. Our bodies can do just fine. Yeah. Right. But we do need sex. Mm -hmm. We do need love. We do need money yeah. to get by in our yeah. in our society. We need food. So yeah. people who struggle with sex addiction, love addiction, food shopping addiction, addiction food addictions, mm -hmm. it's really challenging for them sometimes yeah. because they have to redevelop a relationship with this behavior right so what we typically do is first a really thorough assessment to find out what mental health conditions might be underlying mm -hmm. compulsive sexual behavior if any mm -hmm. because we need to address that at the same time we're providing containment for the sexual behaviors so then we're going to look at how how would they define sexual sobriety not abstinence sobriety uh. Okay. So abstinence might be a part of the plan in the short term, mm -hmm. so they can, you know, allow some time for the neuropathways in their brains to kind of reset, mm -hmm. deconfect, chill out, yeah, right, and then they can build sexual behavior back in. But what we do is look very thoroughly at what are some of the behaviors that shift them from a healthy relationship with sexuality as they define it within their values. Mm -hmm to problematic. So wow. what's the line? When does it start getting compulsive? Yeah. And then they build a plan, like a little blueprint, mm -hmm. to create accountability around not going into those behaviors anymore. So we look at you know, creating a big network of support because mm -hmm. all addictions are, are diseases of isolation. Right. So we want to create support, reduce shame, and then address the underlying issues that got them there in the first place. Yeah. What do you see are common comorbidities that come with sex addiction? There are a lot of 
what you might expect. So uh, anxiety and mm. anxiety-related disorders, depression, depression-related disorders, a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder that goes untreated wow. can create a lot of dysregulation for people okay. and they turn to substances or other behaviors like sex for comfort. Yeah, it's and an escape. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. We see a lot of co-occurrence with bipolar disorder and um, different personality disorders and there's a lot of co-occurrence and comorbidity between features of narcissistic personality disorder and addiction and so sometimes it can be tough to know if there is really um, any sort of underlying narcissistic mm -hmm. um, threat that needs to be addressed or if once people get their addiction under control, most of those behaviors tend to abate unless there's a personality disorder yeah. there. That's funny that you brought up narcissism and addiction because when you think about narcissists, commonly they are very like in control. They kind of like that control over you know their image or kind of what they do. A lot of people think about narcissists sort of in this traditional way of like, oh, they're really showy and obsessed with their mm -hmm. appearance and really self focused and being like the best and the most yeah person. yeah that definitely can be a part of it but I think about narcissism in the way in this way in the sense that it's uh, really about kind of having a myopic lens or self-focused lens mm -hmm. and so when people are in an addiction often they can't see past the tips of their own noses because they are working really hard to keep their addiction thriving because it is something that they need to stay in their minds okay and so it creates a kind of selfishness and short-sightedness mm -hmm. that we often see with people who have more narcissistic features what are some messages you would like someone with sex addiction to know well first I, I think it would be really important for them to know that you're not alone mm -hmm. and you can get help there are thriving recovery communities throughout the United States and around the world and a really compassionate group of clinicians who are dedicated to helping you work through the shame, the fear, the mm -hmm. mess, the entanglements, yeah. and, and move into a life that feels really rewarding for you. Yeah. It is possible. Yeah. What is the one thing a sex addict would require from their partner? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a loaded question. I don't know that there is one thing, mm -hmm. but some of the things that come to mind would be really good boundaries. Okay. Um, accountability without you know, taking over their recovery. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of compassion and empathy mm -hmm. and realistic expectations because there often are a lot of slips along the way to recovery for yeah. people, whether they're recovering from sex addiction or other addictions. Yeah. It's got to be hard as the partner, I think, to reestablish their sex life mm -hmm. and their approach to sex because then you're like, okay, like if I have, if I sleep with this person, are they going to relapse? Or mm -hmm. I think that would probably be in the back of my mind as a partner. Do you have any advice for somebody who thinks like that? Yeah, I mean, I think partners often experience a lot of trepidation around sex. And yeah. Some will get really over-sexual because they think they can sort of fuck away their partner's sex addiction with other people. Yeah. Unconsciously and sometimes consciously. But, you know, oftentimes partners will go into more of an anorexic state with their partner and not want to be sexual with them. Yeah. There's a, a lot of betrayal trauma that partners can experience, especially if they have been cheated on mm -hmm. through their partner's addiction and so I think what's important is that if couples are going to stay together they get a couples therapist who is trained to navigate things like disclosure mm -hmm. and things like 
you know, keeping both partners on their own side of the street because the trauma that a partner can endure often sends them into a state of hypervigilance and they want to know every and anything yeah. about the sexual acting out, but actually that can prevent them from healing oftentimes. So, you know, a, a trained therapist is mm -hmm. going to help them figure out what information is helpful, what information is hurtful, yeah. and it, work with them both to process that so yeah. that they can both feel safe in the process. The other thing I would say to partners is if you make a discovery, it's really um, understandable that you would want to know everything and anything. Yeah. But think about how painful it would be to receive what we call a staggered disclosure. So Which that is. means getting information piece by piece because just when you think you've gotten it all, it's like, like something else. Yeah. Oh, that would kill me. Exactly. And that is what so many partners experience. They're like, what? I thought I knew it all. Right. And sledgehammer. Boom. Here's more information. Yeah. So it's part of why we put up really good boundaries for yeah. couples who are navigating this process together so they can be respectful of each other's pace mm -hmm. and needs without doing more traumatic damage. Yeah. As a couples therapist, what do you see as the main problem for couples in recent years with you know new technology coming up and apps and stuff like that? Has it changed from what you've seen before the rise of technology and social media? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people are living completely separate lives in their technology. Oh my God. And it's great in so many ways because we get to connect with people mm -hmm. like you and I. Yeah. <laughs> we never would have been Right, right. Um, but a lot of people are kind of, you know, numbing out in plain sight with their yeah. partners. I mean, I work with so many couples who come home from work and they sit on the couch next to each other and they eat dinner and they watch TV and they're on their phones. Yeah. And they're not even looking at each other. They're not oh. engaging with each other. And it's causing so much pain. Yeah. And, you know, a regression into these sort of polarized positions in, mm -hmm. in their house where they don't talk to each other and they're both mad. Yeah. Do you recommend, as the couples therapist, like couples look through each other's phones? That's the one thing, because it's like there's a lot of trust issues that come mm -hmm. up, right? Well, here's what I would say to that. If the couples want there to be transparency with the technology, uh -huh. then if they sit down together and say, hey, here's how we're going to work this out, mm -hmm. here's, here's what we're going to do to be transparent, I think that can be okay. Yeah. But if you're feeling like, wow, trust my partner that's a bigger issue mm -hmm. and I think that ought to be discussed and I don't yeah. recommend people snooping sneaking around yeah because if you're already there there's so many boundary violations that yeah. have happened yeah you know there's bigger problems going on yeah the issues that you see in uh, couples do you see the same trend or a different trend in same-sex couples in terms of in terms of like intimacy issues or maybe like trust issues or commitment issues do you see the same kind of trend of problems yeah i mean overall as a culture we are becoming more and more um intimacy confused mm -hmm. and so there tend to be uh, you know a lot of people in lgbtq communities and hetero communities who you know, are really struggling with that. But, yeah. Um, I find that lesbian couples tend to have the most favorably ranked sex lives. Wow, really? And the strongest senses of community and communication. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it kind of goes down from there. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. I've always wanted to know, just because I feel like, I feel like if I were, I'm, I'm straight, but if I were to date a girl, I feel like 
you would understand little nuances like body language or like you, they would get the hint more just because they're the girl too um but like with guys it's like you throw hints all day and they will miss it so i was like i wonder if it's the same kind of problem i mean don't get me wrong there, there's a lot of um opportunity for tension and stress and yeah. communication in, in every couple in all, yeah in all relationships yeah um, is daddy issues a real thing? <laughs> how are you defining daddy issues? Um, I would say, I don't know how, I, okay, I think the common definition of daddy issues that we go by is a female is like damaged from childhood or mm-hmm. lack of affection, lack of, I don't know, I guess a close relationship with like a male figure, mm-hmm. um, a father figure, and then that translates into dysfunctional relationships later on. Do you think that's a real thing or is that just kind of like? people throw that word around (laughs) well I think a lot of people like to um, make it really pejorative and they tend to sort of blame women for this issue but I I do see there being a lot of men and women who struggle in their adult relationships Mm -hmm. because they had less than optimal relationships with their caregivers growing up okay so you know, daddy issues the way you describe yeah. it. Yeah. Sure. Let's look at why. A mm-hmm. lot of dads work outside of the home. Yeah. And especially, I don't know how old you are, but in my generation, you know, more dads were outside of yeah. the home versus yeah. moms. And, you know, moms were the primary caregiver, and so there was already less interaction with dad. Mm-hmm. And if there was any kind of tension between mom and dad, sometimes that you know, trickles down into the relationship that dad has with his kids. Yeah. And so, that combined with a lot of other factors like how men and women are socialized to talk to each other Mm -hmm. can create some distance and young women often will struggle with a yearning for more of a protective figure a male figure they didn't experience that growing up and so it does leave them more vulnerable to be less discerning as they get older Mm -hmm. about who they invite in Mm -hmm. now some women go the other way okay over discerning about uh, who they let in if they've been hurt by dad or a dad figure in yeah life. and they just have a wall up but men have the same issue right but would it, would it be with the relationship with their father or the relationship with the mother figure oftentimes the, the way that that plays out in terms of daddy issues with men is that they tend to not have a lot of male friendships and they tend to mm. overbond with female friends and that usually mirrors an overly enmeshed relationship that they had with their mother growing up and which they have a lot of mixed feelings about because you know without a strong father-son bond Mm -hmm. they often you know don't know who they are as men Mm. so they define that by who they are in relationship to women yeah so I would say we all have parent issues. Right, right. We all have the crazy... (laughs) We seek out in our adult lives what is familiar from our childhood. So if we grew up with functional, healthy, secure, functioning parents Mm -hmm. in a family system, that's what we're going to seek out in our adult lives. If we're people who find ourselves in volatile relationships or non-starter relationships, it's likely because we were imprinted with an expectation that that's sort of what love looks like and feels like. Can you talk a little bit more about non-starter relationships? What is that exactly? So what I mean by that is we pick partners who we really don't want to be with, but there's like some sort of familiarity Mm. there. We usually give those partners a lot of benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. and ignore red flags because neurobiologically, 
our body's like, well, this feels familiar. This feels kind of like love. I should, I should see what this is about, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it might not always feel comfortable, but there's something there that feels unconsciously familiar. This often happens when we have an adult child who was raised with an overly enmeshed parent. Okay. And what ends up happening, Ken Adams uh, writes about this a lot in his book, Silently Seduced, for mm-hmm. who's listening. Um, children will unconsciously pick people that they don't, that they aren't going to be with or can't be loyal to, because if if they chose a partner who was an actual like starter or a healthy relationship partner, they would have to divorce their enmeshed parent. Oh, right. And psychologically, that can be really scary for people. So if I'm constantly picking partners that I know my dad is going to hate, yeah. it's likely my allegiance is over-loyal to my dad. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pick all these non-starters so that I don't actually take them seriously yeah. enough to separate and individuate yeah. from my dad. And like leave the nest mm-hmm. and leave, yeah. Wow, that's very insightful. What do you see has been like a common pattern in people who repeatedly cheat? Um, a lot of what we just talked about, okay. right? Over enmeshment with one parent and an underdeveloped relationship with another. So they have a void for some kind of mother love or a void for some kind of father love. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there's a lot of shame and a lot of difficulty with emotional regulation. And so the behavior becomes a way that they cope. Because think about it, when we're kids, what do we have at our disposal to cope? What do we have at our disposal? Mm-hmm. Um, we can't really go buy cocaine or alcohol yeah. oh, because candy. we're kids. Yeah, we've got candy, we've, we've got, got food. food. Yeah. What else? Toys? Yeah, toys. Okay. We also have our bodies. You know, if we get oh. grounded and sent to our room without toys or anything like that, we have our bodies. And so a lot of children, it's totally normal uh-huh. for children to explore their bodies and figure out what feels good, what doesn't. Uh-huh. But sometimes that can become a way that they cope is through physical exploration. And so when we have children who have developed you know, any kind of masturbation as a coping skill, mm-hmm. that can later become expressed as you know, compulsive sexual behavior in their adulthood. From what you have seen uh, as you know, a couple therapist, what are some dysfunctions you see arise from like a couple with a very large age gap? Mm. Well, as they get older, you know, their their developmental trajectories are usually not aligned. You know, one person may be finished with having children, mm-hmm. another person may want them. Yeah. One person may be experiencing um, a deterioration in their body or in their libido as another person is coming more into their physical prime. Mm-hmm. Um, they might just have different friend groups, which can be really challenging. Right. If there's a significant age gap. Yeah. They, one can be more professionally advanced than another. And so, I, uh, it, not that they're impossible, I think I've seen a lot of very flourishing relationships with mm-hmm. big age gaps, but when we start looking at age gaps where one person is maybe under 30 mm-hmm. and there's a 10 to 20 year difference between them, yeah. that's a much bigger deal than somebody who is 30 and 45 and 50. Right. But then as people start getting older, you know, there's a, a more rapid deterioration for the older partner. And so, you know, there's just lots of different things for those couples to really think about as their life pace shifts and changes. Yeah. Do you think that that kind of preference for a very, very, a much older partner, a much younger partner comes from childhood issues as well, or no? It can be motivated. 
motivated okay. childhood issues, certainly, but I think other things to consider, and I hate to sound so um, unromantic here, but <laughs> sometimes people are more opportunistic, yeah. so it's it's more a relationship of convenience. Right, you know, that's I'll true. scratch your back in this way, you scratch mine in this yeah. way. Yeah, transactional, yeah. like you said, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that if right. it's consensual. Right, right. right. Um, but I think other reasons are, are a little bit more insidious mm -hmm. and unconscious, and that usually involves some kind of identity construction. So okay. if I have a partner who is X, then it means Y about me. And so a lot of people are seeking an, uh, some sort of security in themselves mm -hmm. through who they partner with. Do you think that's kind of why people would date the same kind of person? Like, like for example, if you only date like if you date one lawyer, you continue to keep on dating a lawyer for you know what I mean? It's like that familiarity pattern, or it could be, yeah, it could be could maybe dad was like a lawyer, mom was a lawyer, yeah. or maybe they wanted to be a lawyer and yeah. they wanted to be one. Or maybe yeah. they are one and only want to date. Yeah, reason. Yeah, but yeah, it could. I mean, we see this a lot in sort of the stereotypical doctors' wives. Yeah, mm. like a lot of women want to marry doctors because there's some status Growing associated up. with that. Yeah, right. Yeah, and when we think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it makes it a little less um, maniacal mm -hmm. because when we're thinking about the way that men and women have historically been socialized to survive, men were the hunters, women were the gatherers. Right. So in this case men are providing in this financial way, women are taking care of the household, mm -hmm. but still there's a lot of esteeming that can happen when we're talking about status, mm -hmm. and it's sort of an internalized, commoditized rage mm -hmm. or a commoditized assuage, right? Meaning, if I'm not where I want to be or who I want to be, I might feel more angry yeah. or dissatisfied at the world or myself. But if I am partnered with somebody who helps me fill that void, I can esteem myself. Right. And feel good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You are currently in the process of writing a book. A couple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Will you tell us all about it? How has that journey been? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the books that I'm working on is called "Fuck You, Fuck Me: uh -huh. Sex, Money, and Anger in uh, Relationships in Modern Society," mm -hmm. and that's talking a lot about what you just hit on—the yeah. right? way that men and women objectify each other sexually, financially, as a means to get their needs met. Mm -hmm. um, but really, it ends up kind of biting them in the butt right. in the long term, right. most of the time. That's what that book is about. I'm working on one that is addressing all different kinds of anger and rage and everything on the continuum uh -huh. and looking at how we are influenced uh, by the greater society and what we then internalize and give back to society mm -hmm. and how to cope with anger and sort of, you know, letting anger be a positive communicator in your life and yeah. letting it go. Yeah. So I'm working on that. And then I've got one book that is uh, called Leaving the Dollhouse, and this is all about how women who are enmeshed as children mm -hmm. are impacted as adults, and okay. how they can you know, really reclaim their lives in yeah. every dimension of life. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. So you're working on three all at once. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> um, what are, do you have a date for when these come out so we can keep an eye on it? I'm hoping sometime in 2020. Okay. That they'll okay. come out. Fingers crossed. Yeah. There's a lot going on. I've got a couple of other projects that are yeah. in the works. So That's it's fun amazing. Stuff. You are obviously very successful, and I love to ask all of my female guests this. But what is your morning routine? 
Ooh. Um, usually, every morning I hit the snooze button two or three times because <laughs> I like occasionally wake up. <laughs> so I plan for it. And then my dog and I snuggle and she basically bathes my face. Okay, it's like a face wash. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's usually how we start. And then um, I do a little bit of stretching. If I have time before the office, I'll go to the gym. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I go after. But um, have a cup of coffee. Put on my makeup and yeah. do my thing. You look fantastic, but you're in amazing shape. Oh, you're very yeah. sweet. Yeah. So what is what is your gym routine? Because I gotta know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a blend of pretty um, high interval training yeah. and intensity training, and then a lot of cardio and yoga. I'm trying to mix it up. You look, you guys, she looks so good. Oh, you're oh my God. Too kind. <laughs> Before we wrap the show, mm-hmm. we do a segment every week. It's called Weekly Weakness. Okay. And it's all about like your favorite thing of the moment. So it could be a product, a book, a movie, TV show, anything. Mm. What is your current obsession? You know what I'm obsessed with right now? What? This amazing truffle oil that I found um, at Whole Foods. Okay. I've been putting truffle oil on, on everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. Game changer. <laughs> it's so good. Elevate anything in the world. <laughs> seriously, scrambled eggs. I mean, no, seriously. I mean, it's um, yeah. potatoes. You can just ones like salad, any everything, yes. everything. I have a <laughs> truffle oil. My name's Kate. I'm the truffle oil. I'm sure. A 12-step program. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell our listeners where they can find you. So on Instagram, they can find me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri. So it's mm-hmm. um, Kate, or Dr. Kate, mm-hmm. B-A-L-E-S-T-R-I-E-R-I. Um, for anybody looking for a consultation with myself or mm-hmm. anyone on my amazing clinical team, they can go to triunetherapy.com. That's T-R-I-U-N-E-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com. And we're also on Insta at Triune Therapy Group. Thank you so much for coming out to talk Thank to me you. today. This was so fun. It was this so was much fun. I can't wait for everybody to hear this episode. I think it is such um, an under-discussed topic that we need to talk about and have people understand. The more we understand, you guys, the more we know, the more we can move in compassion and grace around all the issues in the world. So, thank you so much. You're for so welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Kate Balistrieri. If you guys enjoyed this episode or any other previous episodes, please give me five stars. Hit the subscribe button so you guys never miss an episode. Okay, you guys, stay safe, wash your hands, and I will catch you next Friday on Vibing and Valentino.